Hello, creepy cats. We're here today to talk about another psychic solving crimes. Jackie will be telling Melissa about the life of Dorothy Allison, a psychic detective with many crimes and a few controversies under her belt. This episode will discuss assault and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are telling our second episode of the theme, Solving Psychics. Go, Jackie, go. Go, Jackie, go. Oh, God. Go, Jackie, go. (laughs) Oh, my. I messed that up. Dang it. That's all right. I guess I can forgive you for messing up the theme song. (laughs) So, let's just get right into it. Today, I'm going to be telling Melissa about Psychic Dorothy Allison is her name. Sadly, I don't have a lot of information about her life, like, growing up and all that stuff. I'm not even sure the exact year she was born, but this mainly happens in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then, sadly, Dorothy Allison passed away in the 90s. Oh, no. So, yeah, this one is uh, a little older, and I believe she was a little older even when she was, like, doing detective work. Mm. So, she was born in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is funny because that's where yours is taking place. It must be very intuitive in New Jersey. Right? She grew up in a Roman Catholic family. It said her mother was a seer. I don't know if that means, like, seeing. I honestly do not know what that meant. But I was just like, okay. spirits? I guess. I don't know. It said that Dorothy had visions as a child and that neighbors and other people called her a witch, like you said, too. Oh, she's just like my girl Nancy. I know, right? Uh, Her first meaningful and, like, important psychic experience was when she was 14. She said that her father even though he was in good health and stuff, was going to die in two weeks. And then he subsequently came down with pneumonia and passed away, just as she had envisioned it two weeks later. Oh, my gosh. So she lived a quiet life through, like, the mid-20th century. Uh, She married and had a couple children, and she settled in Nutley, New Jersey. (laughs) She had, like visions from time to time dealing with like family and friends and stuff like that and it led her as a career as a professional psychic oh so she kind of wasn't like she wasn't trying to get famous and that's Mm -hmm. the one thing i want to say right off the bat because her mom told her that like these gifts were just that they were a gift so she shouldn't accept money for them and she shouldn't be like doing all this just for money so she actually never specifically made money just from being a psychic detective or from being a psychic she would obviously accept like the free hotels and meals and the fame that came with doing television appearances Mm -hmm. and she was quite outspoken and very opinionated not in a bad way she just was but she didn't 
was not doing this for money and didn't just accept money. She's not doing psychic readings. No, no, that. no. She's not doing stuff like that. Okay. So one of the things that really got her into fame and into the limelight was a case in 1968. She had approached the local police about a missing child. So the child, I couldn't find his name, but this is like in the 60s, so I guess I'll let it slide. There aren't a whole lot about the case, but on December 3rd, 1967, a little boy was playing with his brother and some other children, I believe, on a riverbank and disappeared. Dorothy Allison had a vision of the boy drowning and being caught in a pipe two hours before the incident happened. She said that she had, like, two hours before he went missing, that she had a vision that she saw a boy in a pipe his his hands were clasped together. He was wearing a green snowsuit with a polo shirt and stripes underneath and an undershirt underneath that that had a metal pin on it, and one of his shoes was on the wrong foot. So she later contacted the police, who they obviously were skeptical, but she described the little boy's appearance and the clothing that he was wearing on the morning that he disappeared exactly to how people had said that they saw him that morning, and that information had not been released to the public. And there were also no photos of the little boy that had been released to the public either. <laughs> yeah, so they're like, she can't be making this up. So they decided to take her insights and the things she was saying a little more seriously and be a little more open-minded. So she, they gave her an interview, and she had like some psychic downloads during that. She saw the number 120, the number 8, said that he would be found behind a school, that there was lumber involved. There was a parking lot, a factory, gold lettering on a window, and he would be found on February 7th. Whoa. So, he was found on February 7th at 120 in the afternoon, floating in the river, where there were a lot of pipes that ran by. And they said that it was possible that the pipes could have unfroze and, like, flushed his body out. So, like, they found his body in the river and they could never confirm that it was in a pipe. But they said it was definitely possible. Oh, wow. There was a school at the riverbank nearby that had something to do with, like, eight in the name, I think. But there was a school right nearby that had something to do with the number eight. There was a lumber yard across the street. Next door was an office with gold lettering on the window, and directly across the river was a factory with a parking lot. He was in the same clothes that she described in her vision as well. So, she basically described, like, everything that she saw from when his body was found. This is crazy how they can do this. I know, right? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, on December 20th, 1974, there was a man, he was 39 years old, he was a New York banker named John DeMars. He worked in New York, but lived in New Jersey, obviously, because New York and New Jersey are really close if you take the train. So, he, on that night, left, left his Manhattan office to ride the train back home to New Jersey. He was married with two young kids, and he would always call his wife when he was going to be late. When his train stopped at Nutley, he was not on board and did not get off. At first, police thought he might have embezzled money 
in or just run off with a lover. They thought maybe the money thing, yeah, because he was a banker. How often does someone run off with a lover that police always make this assumption? I have no idea, but it seems like that is always their go-to when someone runs away is that they're with a lover. But (laughs) anyway, so they kind of easily, like, the case went cold. And Detective Sal Lubertazzi went to psychic Dorothy Allison to ask for her help with the case. And she gave them some clues and some psychic downloads. She said that he drowned and that he fell off the train into water and that he was in water. She said there was a row of tires, a little park where kids slide down on a hill. She said, I see a man in this water here. Uh, She said a bow and arrow would be important in the number two, two, two. Not like all together, I don't think, but she saw two, three times. Okay. So... That was just her tips, and, like, nothing really happened after that, but two months after John had vanished, a father and son were target shooting with a bow and arrow on a bluff overlooking the Passaic River in New Jersey. One of the arrows had missed the target they were shooting at and landed just a few feet from John's body in the water. (gasps) John had been found on February 22nd, which matched what Dorothy said about the numbers being 2-2-2, because, like, February 22. She's good with numbers like that. Right? There was also a nearby park where tires had been arranged to make a sled run. What? Yeah. Police had actually determined that, with the help of what Dorothy said, that John had fallen asleep on the train ride home, and the conductor had made an unscheduled stop on the Passaic River Bridge and opened the doors to let another passenger off the back of the train. John was still half asleep and thought that this was a stop and walked off the train and fell off the bridge and drowned, (gasps) which is horrific. That just, like, made my stomach sink. How did no one see that? I was kind of thinking that, too. I have no idea. I mean, maybe because this was at night. Weren't, there weren't that many people on there. I have no idea. I try to actually find pictures of where he would have been getting off on a bridge that is overlooking the water and somehow just walks off. But it's also, it was 1960-something or 70-something. So, I don't know. Maybe safety was a little different, but that is, like, truly my worst nightmare. That just made me feel, I'm so scared now. Yeah. That really scared me. Just... I really don't like that either uncomfortable laughter because that is one of the worst things I could think of. So, And actually, I found on a website that that case of John DeMars was, had some eerie similarities to a story called The Ghost of Dead Man's Curve written by C.B. Colby that was published in uh, like a magazine thing called Strangely Enough in 1959 and then reprinted in the world's best true gross ghost stories in 1989 and in the story it's about the disappearance apparently in 1908 between port chester and rye and the victim he was someone who was never found but disappeared i think like on a train wait what what's the similarity honestly i don't even know the exact similarity i just saw some people commented when about this story that like John, like, him getting off the train and falling in the water was, like, similar to 
the uh, story that old was written. ghost story. Yeah, that was it was called the Ghost of Dead Man's Curve, okay. and I think it was something about like a road where someone disappeared on. I don't really know. I just thought I'd mention it in case I tried to find it, but I couldn't find the damn story. But just thought it'd be cool if anyone okay. wanted to look into it. That's interesting. But anyway, that case was um, featured on a part of Unsolved Mysteries, the May 6, 1988 episode. I'm almost positive this was featured with another story specifically talking about Dorothy Allison. But Ooh. I know they talked about that one really quick. Get her her and, own Right? And the other story they talked about with her on Unsolved Mysteries, I didn't find the episode, so my apologies. But on May 15th, 1976, so two years after the John DeMars case, 14-year-old Susan Jacobson left her Staten Island home to go to a job interview at an ice cream parlor. When she didn't come back for dinner, her parents contacted the police and knew something was up. The police claimed that she had probably run away with a boyfriend. Oh, my God. So annoying. And they didn't search for her. And I think that really broke her father's heart. Like, he like he never got over that, which is really tragic. But two weeks later, the Jacobsons asked Dorothy Allison to help. Dorothy and her husband went to Staten Island They knew nothing about the case. They didn't meet the Jacobsons. She didn't want to know anything about it. When she arrived at their home, she asked Ellen, the mother, what the numbers 2562 meant. She said that the numbers were Susan's birthday, February 5th, 1962. Dorothy then asked about the numbers 408 or 405 and found out that Susan was born at 405 a.m. Oh my gosh. And then she asked what M-A-R meant and stated that she wanted to see Mar. She also said Susan was in water, but she didn't drown and that the number 222 was significant. Again, with that number, I don't know. And you know what I actually want to point out? I think it's really crazy that both the other stories that she was involved in was that it happened in December and that they were found in February and that she said that. She's the queen of twos, right? And... Yeah, Susan was born in February. I was like, well. So, the authorities refused to work with a psychic, of course. So, Bill, the father, decided to investigate Dorothy's clues on his own. He worked with the clues, like, because she also said that there was something to do with an abandoned car. There was something to do with the smell of oil. There were going to be two sets of church steeples, two smokestacks, and swamps or marshes. Everything in twos. Yeah. So, the Jacobsons searched Staten Island and were, like, trying to find... Doing their own search, basically. They found a place that was nicknamed Down Back, which was an abandoned World War One shipyard. And they found a rock that had the letters M-A-R in red spray paint on them. So that just they- gave me the chills. Yeah, so they uh, they looked the area like searched the area, but they actually couldn't find anything. So two years later, in 1978, three boys were out muskrat hunting in the area, and it said that I think one of the boys looked in, in an oil drum and thought that it was the bones of an animal. So he got his friends, and when they came back, they looked in and they saw that it was actually clothing was in there too. So they went and told their parents, and their parents called the police. Oh, no. So... It was in a water tank? 
Or some sort of tank? Yeah, it was in a, an oil drum. Oh, sorry. And that was actually, like Dorothy had said, an oil drum was going to be important. From standing where the oil drum was, where Susan's body was found, you could see two church steeples, two smokestacks, and an abandoned car. Whoa. Yeah. And the drum on the serial number... <laughs> the serial number on the drum... Was two two two. What? All the twos in this are freaking me out. Right. So they eventually hunted down Susan's ex-boyfriend <gasps> named Dempsey Hawkins. I'm how? not exactly sure. I'm sorry. I'm not exactly sure how they ended up getting him for the murder. But I think maybe once they found Susan's body, it was like easy for them. But Regardless, it was Dempsey Hawkins who did it, and he did admit to it, so he did, he has told police everything that has happened, and he said that um, that night, he, him and Susan were dating. She was 14, and it was May 15, 1976. Her parents had ordered them to break up after Susan had become pregnant and had an abortion. Also, this is all um, Dempsey Hawkins saying this, too, by the way. So, he said he was unable to, like, think about living without her. And he just, like, couldn't handle that, basically. He said he took her to this little place. It sounds cool if you weren't going to murder somebody. It's like, he says that you can, there's these little rooms, basically, in the ground that you can go underneath. And they're little underground bunkers. So, he said he took Susan down there. And he took off his shirt, and he went like he was going to give her a kiss, and he strangled her to death with the shirt, and then picked up her body and put it in a drum, and I believe put the drum in the marsh. So, he was born in England and raised in Staten Island, and he served his time and got deported, I believe, in 2017 or 2018, after he served his time and got released, was sent back to England. Why did he do it? Just because he said he didn't want anyone else to have her? Yeah. And I think before people start, like, saying, basically, why is he not serving life in prison? I'm pretty sure he was, like, 16 at the time that happened. Which is no excuse whatsoever. But, I'm, I mean, let's gonna not be wrong. I, I mean, let's also not be wrong. You're not really logical when you're 16 years yeah. old. So, I think her... Having an abortion and them breaking up was all, like, and her parents forcing them to break up, I think, was just, like, too much for him. And he just was one of those things, if I can't have you, nobody can. That's his account of things. Exactly, that's also his account. Did Dorothy get any visions regarding that? She said that she believed that she was strangled. And that, yeah, she said that her body was going to be in water in a drum, but that she wasn't drowned. But specifically, she didn't get anything on the boyfriend? Um, I don't know if she did. I'm pretty sure that the family suspected the boyfriend. Right. But never was, like, sure Mm -hmm. of it. And I don't know if she really had... If Susan really had, like, an interview with the police and just went to meet up with him in secret because they weren't supposed to be seeing each other. 
But I kind of feel like that's the vibe of what happened. Wait, why would Susan have an interview with the police? I mean, um, I'm sorry, because that day when she went missing, she was supposed to have an interview with an ice cream parlor, not the police. Oh, I was like, what the hell? Because she told her parents that's where she was going. <laughs> okay, so gotcha. I'm, just, sorry, I'm sure gotcha. people are like, well, she had an interview. How'd she end up with the ex-boyfriend? True. I bet she, she probably met up. She with probably him. just met up with him in secret. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But regardless, sadly. Dempsey Hawkins did kill Susan, served his time, and was sentenced to England, or um, deported back to England. I don't know what he's up to there. Obviously, if you want to look more into that case, there is a good amount about it, but I didn't want to go full in depth, you know? But So that's three murder cases under her belt. Yeah, and girl, the next ones are just, I'm going to talk about real quick, Okay. She's also done three cases that are very high profile. So she was consulted during the Son of Sam murders, and she drew a very accurate portrait of the killer that looks a lot like David Berkowitz and predicted that the killer would be caught because of a parking ticket, which is how David Berkowitz was caught. She also was consulted for the Patty Hearst kidnapping, where she gave precise details of the locations in Pennsylvania and New York where she was being held captive and also predicted that she would bond with her kidnappers and assist them in a bank robbery, which obviously happened. That's wild. Could you imagine her saying that? And they're probably like, okay, yeah, right, girl. That's nuts. Yeah. And she did also draw a picture of what she believed the suspect. So she was also contacted for... John Benet Ramsey. Oh. She believed, she stated that John and Pat Ramsey were innocent, and <gasps> she drew a sketch of the person that she saw as the killer that looked remarkably like modern-day suspect John Carr. Do you remember which one was that? Was that the one who was, like, Santa Claus and stuff? Regardless, John Carr, they tested his DNA, and he was excluded. Okay. But... He came back into light a while after the case was, like, you know, a while after it happened. So, one of the things that people... Because, obviously, just like your case, Melissa, people tear Dorothy apart and say that she's not real, she's a phony, all that stuff. hmm Haters. But, yeah. But some people say that it's very possible because... She, Dorothy describes it like tuning into a radio station where she hears all these things, gets all these tidbits, and she's the one putting it all together. So it's like, you can't really blame her. And Nancy Weber, she isn't specifically saying that, but she is saying she's getting glimpses and here and there. So I can see that people want it to be so specific. Yeah. And one of the things that some people said as a possibility is that she could have seen his mugshot when he was back into the limelight and have thought that that was like them catching the killer and had interpreted that as him being the person who did it when she was really just tuning into him being back in the spotlight for the case. So people were tearing her to shreds because she falsely said that John Carr did it. And And then they tested his DNA and it wasn't him. Gotcha. So... I'm just going to mention, like, some other things, some psychic things. Um, There was one time that an elderly patient who had Alzheimer's disappeared from a nursing home, and they called her. She said that she saw a wooded area nearby where there were caves near a mountain, and the number five was significant. Later on, they found him in a wooded area near a copper mine near a mountain, 
2.5 miles away from the nursing home, and the only house on the road he was found on was house number five. How the hell did he get there? I have no idea. That's so sad. I'm Dorothy's awesome. She's helping all these people. Yeah. So another time in March 1991, she was called to help a case of a missing teenage girl, but she couldn't pick up on anything on the girl specifically, like who went missing. But she did say that she had a strong vision of a girl being dismembered in various parts of her encased in cement. Ooh. Yeah. So, she later drove past the lake and also had a strong impression of a girl that something was, like, gonna happen to her, but they didn't really find anything, so they were like, uh, okay. Several months later, though, in June, another teenage girl went missing, and two weeks later, her body was discovered in the lake, dismembered and encased in a cement, encased in cement, which each piece of cement was, like, floating. And that's what she said, that her limbs would be in cement. And the most crazy part is about that is that she predicted that two months before it happened. Like, she was just there and they were trying to investigate something else. And she didn't get anything on what they were even trying to investigate. She just said, like, I'm sensing that somebody, a girl, is going to be dismembered in cement. And then it happened two months later. She probably went back to all those people who jumped down her throat that day and were like, what... What did I tell you? She was contacted again and stated that the body of another victim would soon be found, too. She said that the girl would be strangled and that they would she would be found underneath some brush and they would hear trickling water. Soon after that, another teenage girl went missing, and two weeks after, her nude body was found strangled underneath some brush near water. Do you know if they ever found that killer? I'm not sure. I didn't really look, actually, into those whole cases. It was just kind of crazy because she, like, predicted two things before they even happened. That is crazy. I like that your story is different in, like, giving all these different um, scenarios and situations that happened. And mine was just, like, one story because I couldn't find all different stories like this when I was looking at Nancy Weber. I was just finding the main one that got her all the attention. Yeah, and I, she wrote a book too, but I couldn't get a hold of it because it's like from the 90s. But I found the most of the stuff on one website that I'll link it. And this person seems super invested in her. So I don't think that they would just be writing all this crazy stuff if they, if it wasn't like accurate. So another, just two more things. Dorothy worked on a case of a missing boy. And according to the police officers, they said that she helped and got a lot of stuff right with the case. However, she said that the boy was dead. But in real life, he was actually alive and had run away and joined a cult. So when people got on Dorothy's ass about that, she clarified that she had believe she saw his spiritual death because the boy that they knew was never going to be the same person uh, before this happened Mm -hmm. and before he joined the cult. So basically, like, the person they were looking for was dead. He was, like, no longer that person, which I thought was crazy. It's so hard to say because I could see if she was wrong, her trying to use that to clarify. But at the same time, I could see that being 100% legit and her seeing something like that in telling yeah. police and or telling whoever and then just assuming that meant he's dead. So 
That's tough because I could see that going either way. Yeah. And then in 1996, something that people really, really try to say that Dorothy is making this stuff up for money and that she's not accurate was that she was helping with some sort of death of multiple black teenage boys in Georgia, I believe. She led police to a field and said that she believed that the boys had been burned and dumped there. So the police dug a lot and they only found two teeth, which they were never able to determine were human. And then I don't know if it's for that case or a different one, but I believe it's for that one. She gave the police 40 names of suspects, none of whom could ever be arrested or identified. So where people, is she getting all... Those are two things where people are kind of saying, where is she getting that from? And honestly, even if she's wrong, it's kind of just like, okay, then she's wrong. Like, she was still right about all the other stuff. Yeah. For no reason, because she never really wanted money for any of that stuff, and she was already a psychic on her own, And, like, what they said with the bodies not being found there, I feel like could be similar to how you said before she was getting energy from an event that was going to happen in the future. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Maybe there's something like that, or maybe it was so far in the past that you're not even going to find the bones, but... That's what I thought. It can always be residual energy mm-hmm. of other stuff on the land. But I don't blame people, for, especially yeah. police, for getting pissed, because that's your hard work and time that you're putting into that, but you should know that before you get into it. So. Yeah, I definitely can see why people crap on her, but... I just personally (laughs) believe that there's a lot more evidence that she's legit than not. Right. So the last thing about Dorothy Allison, she told her parents, I believe in 1990, that she would, or her family, not her parents, that she would not live to the age of 75. Oh, no. And she died in 19, December of 1999 in New Jersey of heart failure at the age of 74, and her birthday was four weeks away. (gasps) Oh, no. So kind of crazy. She told her family she wouldn't live to see 75, and she died a couple weeks before her 75th birthday. Wow. Yeah. Pretty crazy. I know. I wish that... I wish that she was in the same time frame as Nancy Weber and them two could have just a meeting and channeled their powers on something specific. I think they were kind of in the same frame, but time frame, but I think it was like... Dorothy was wrapping up. And that's another thing, too. Like, with those cases that she was helping in the 90s, she was in her 70s at that point. Oh, wow. So, cut her some slack, piece. Nancy Weber isn't obviously not that old because she's 60-something now to in 2021. Oh. Well, sadly, Dorothy Allison is dead, but she does have a book. I'll link the name of it below. I don't remember, but I will say it's... You can't buy it on Amazon. It's pretty hard to find, so... Shop local. Yeah, try to find it local. I just thought maybe online, you know, it would be easier, but it seems a little harder. Like I said, I'm glad that you told all a bunch. I'm glad that you told all of her little stories because I could not find that information. But let me know what you guys think if you liked hearing one psychic's 10 different stories or if you want to hear one psychic's most famous story and get the scoop on the entire thing. Yeah. Because honestly, I don't know what what one I like more. Sometimes I'm in the mood for 25 different stories. Sometimes I just want the tea on one particular one. 
Yeah, definitely let us know what you guys think about that part, about multiple stories or just going super in-depth with one, because that's why I didn't go super in-depth with mine, because I didn't want to be here forever, you know? And if you guys have had any psychic experiences or anything, uh, comment on our Instagram, send us a message, let us know. Maybe we'll have one of you guys as a guest. Yes, we want to know, so tell us. (laughs) All right, guys. Thank you for listening again. We appreciate you so much. And we will see you guys next time for another amazing episode of the podcast. Ooh, that's creepy. Bye. Bye. Want to creep on us? Follow us on social media at ew, that's creepy podcast, or send us an email at ew, that's creepy podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, creepy cats.